Please do take your seats. Open up your Bible to Mark chapter 7, uh, where we'll be spending the next part of our time together. And if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and um, I'll be preaching from this passage. And I'll also be trying to grab you as you try and leave the building afterwards to say hello. Um, in Imperial Russia, most Jewish people live, were forced to live outside of the mainstream society in, a, in an area called the Pale, P-A-L-E, the Pale of Settlement, hence the phrase beyond the pale. It was basically a way of removing Jews from the wider society and putting them into a big ghetto. Deborah Baum is a, an academic at the University of Southampton. She studied Jewish humor, Jewish jokes, which are kind of a, a, a defense mechanism. She recounts an old joke that goes like this. Two Jewish men, two Russian Jew Jews, Moshe and Abraham, are walking down the street and they're complaining about they're so hungry they're, they're too poor to eat. And they then pass a church building with a sign outside and the sign says, convert to Christianity and we'll give you 10 rubles. And Moshe looks at Abraham and he says, well, you know what, I'm going to do it. And he goes inside. 20 minutes later, he emerges, looking solemn, with his head bowed. And Abram says, well, did you do it? Did you get the 10 rubles? And Moshe looks at him and says, what is it with you people? You only ever think about money. <laughs> now, if you can see the funny side, it's because you understand something of the inner world of those Jewish people, the fact that they were stereotyped as obsessed with money, the fact that they were often poor and marginalized in the wider society, the fact that they were oppressed by so-called Christian churches which weren't functioning in a Christian way at all. You can understand a Jewish joke if you understand something of the inner world of the Jewish people. And of course, once you've taken a joke apart like that, it isn't funny anymore. Now, we need to do something like that with Mark chapter 7. It's a strange passage at first. Thank you to the two young people who read it for us so well. Half of this chapter is to do with a dispute over what makes a person clean or unclean in, in religious terms, and about, particularly about washing. And it seems so obscure to us. And this debate is raised by members of a group called the Pharisees, and some teachers of the law, they were religious lawyers. Now, stay with me. Although this, this set of issues may seem obscure, it seems like a very obscure debate, it touches some profound issues for all of us. So we must try and enter their world a bit this morning and pay close attention. Jesus Christ seized that moment to give some of his most profound teaching. He gives a depth analysis of the human condition, an analysis that applies to all of us. It's not limited to the confines of this particular first century debate. It applies to us all. Jesus, in effect, says that we are all corrupted, defiled, and unclean from the inside out. It's a very profound way of looking at humanity. And therefore, we, we need to be purified in the sight of a holy God. And that purification will not be accomplished by external behavior of certain kind of observance of religious practices and rituals. We need to be changed 
at the heart level. That's what this is all about. And we all need that. And the first step to getting changes at the heart level is accepting that you need it. That's the first step. And you know you can be in church a very long time before you really take that first step. But maybe you can today. And in verse 24 to 30, it looks like a a strange gear change because Jesus then goes to try to, probably to lie low a while and rest in the area we now call Lebanon. And he has this really bizarre encounter with a local woman who's heard about him. And she comes to him desperate and determined to get deliverance for her daughter. This woman is not Jewish. Her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit, an impure demon. And so from a, a, a Jewish perspective, this is just about as unclean as you can get. It's, not, it's outside of the country in the, the non-Jewish world. It's a non-Jewish woman. It's her daughter and an impure spirit. And it's just in every way. And yet Jesus honors this woman's faith, welcomes her, delivers the girl, and makes her clean. What, why has Mark put that passage next to the one before it? Remember, these things are very carefully edited under the inspiration of the Spirit. The story is a sign that Jesus meant what he said about clean and unclean. Okay, so that gives you an overview of where we're going. My prayer today is that as we look into the mirror of God's word, we will see ourselves more clearly and stop pretending. That we will turn to Jesus in desperate faith like that woman and that we will be renewed and cleansed and freed like her daughter. Let me just share three points briefly. Firstly, the problem with religion. Secondly, the problem with the heart. And thirdly, the power of Jesus. The problem with religion, the problem with the heart, the power of Jesus. The problem with religion, verses 1 to 13. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, who are these Pharisees? I have to say the Pharisees have got a bad rap in Christian churches for many, many years, and we often present them, preachers present them, in a kind of a pantomime caricature, and I've been guilty of it too, so I'm going to repent of that today. The Pharisees were actually a group, a very powerful sort of pressure group within society that was not from the priestly establishment, it was from lay people who really cared about God's kingdom coming back and really wanted to make the society built on God's word and really wanted their culture to be more moral and to be free of the impurities that were coming in from the Greek and the Roman worlds around. So in other words, these are zealous believers who want the people to be true to God. And in many ways, they were heroes. Some Pharisees had died, been crucified for their resistance to the Greek and the Roman cultures. They They were lay people who were very powerful. And so they wanted to make sure that everyone was right. But that led them to some practices that in the end were not helpful. And in verse 3, it says what they did. And if you see it's there in a bracket, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. So that's not just hygiene, that's about a, a ritual religious washing. Holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, what's all this washing about? 
In the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, a person could be disqualified from worshipping God by a few different things. Uh, Firstly, if they were in contact with a dead body, they would be disqualified, they would be defiled and be disqualified from worshipping God. Uh, Infectious skin diseases, mildew in their clothing or their possessions or in their home, any bodily discharges, so natural bodily discharges like periods, but also um, unhealthy bodily discharges like pus, uh, would, would make a person defiled, and eating any foods that had, were in the list of unclean foods. Uh, shellfish, and most famously pork, and other kinds of foods. So these things were, were um, set up, described in the law of Moses, that if you were in contact with those things, you would be defiled, and you couldn't come into God's presence in the sanctuary for a time. And when you did, when the time had passed, you had to wash with water, ceremonial washing, to show that you were purified. Now, what's going on here? This, all of this stuff is a picture of what sin does. All of it is a picture of what sin does to human beings. Sin destroys. You notice how that list of things included things that were diseased or decayed or infectious or dirty, maybe smelly, or dead. Sin tends to destroy and undo us as people. Sin makes us less than what we should be, less than who we were made to be. Our sin destroys. Our sin also tends to isolate. The more you indulge your sins, the more it removes you from loving, warm, open, real relationship with other people. Sin also disfigures. It is ugly and repulsive. And that's the point about all these things that sort of smell and are horrible. And, it's that sin makes your soul repulsive. Particularly in the sight of a, a, a pure and holy God. So all of these things are a picture of sin. Now, notice that in the Old Testament, that's the limit of the washing requirements. Okay, You come into contact with these sorts of things. You can't go into the temple for a while. When you've done your time, you go there and wash. And that's it. That's all the law requires. But... These guys have gone much, much further. And with their own traditions, they developed a kind of fence. And the fence is much more strict and specific requirements to stop you getting even close to something that might defile you. And it was called halakha. And they demanded that everyone wash their hands all the time in order to be pure. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus refuses to have his disciples bound by the traditions. Okay, so far it's clear. Why did these people do it? Remember what I said, they have an intense desire that the kingdom of God will come and they want to guard the boundaries of Jewish life. And, but it's all based here on the tradition of the elders, a time-honored, venerated community tradition. We've all lived like this for a long time and they want to protect that. And it's not something that's required by the Bible itself. It's a fence built around the Bible's requirements. And so they come to Jesus when they see Jesus' followers, his disciples, aren't doing it. And they ask a question in verse 5. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, it doesn't, on the surface, doesn't that seem like a fairly reasonable question? You know, it depends on the tone, I suppose. It seems reasonable on the surface, but really what they're doing is trying to shame Jesus in a public forum in front of everyone else. And that will discredit him 
as a, as a holy man, as a teacher. It will damage his reputation. And we know that these guys are dead set against Jesus. The last time they appeared in chapter 3, verse 6, it said the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So this is all part of a conspiracy that's going on in the background to kill, to remove Jesus from the scene. It is not an innocent question, and Jesus sees through it. And so what he then does is quite brilliant. He regains the higher ground, and he shows them that he's the one who really champions God's law. Verse 6, look what he says. Isaiah, that's the great prophet from the Old Testament, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Hypocrites. What is a, a hypocrite? The Bible word means an actor. Somebody who pretends to be something on the outside, but that's not true of them on the inside. And in the Greek world, the actors would wear a mask. And the word hypocrite comes from that. Somebody who's wearing a mask during a performance. And you know, hypocrites in every generation wear masks including us. Verse 7, Jesus gives a devastating critique of these guys. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. In other words, you can use your religion, your, your religious tradition, as a way of disobeying God. Not actually keeping God's law, but keeping your own traditions. And he gives an example in verse 9 to 12 of something called Corban. A strange thing. What is this? Uh, it, Corban was a formula that you could use to set aside your property for God. So it sounds very, very holy. A person would, would dedicate all their property to God with a vow. The vow of Corban. Lord, I devote all of my stuff to you. My house, my car, my books. You know, they would devote all the stuff they really value to God. It all belongs to him. But the thing was, once they've dedicated to God, they kind of kept hold of it. Because you don't have to really give it to God. It's not, it's not there. So the legal experts found there was a loophole here that could be used, like a clever accountant who uses uh, some loophole in the law to help someone get away from paying tax. And the experts said this. If someone's declared that their property belongs to God... They don't need to give anything to their parents. It frees them from their obligations. And Jesus says, oh, 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 hang on a minute. You think because you've made this vow of Corban that you can now ditch your parents? They're your parents. They brought you into this world. They made all sorts of sacrifices to bring you up. They gave you a start in life. And God's law enshrines our responsibility for our parents right there in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. No loopholes there. It's for all time. It's for all humanity. And why would someone use a supposed religious practice to avoid their duty to their own parents? Well, if your parents upset you, you fell out with them, you, you began to resent them, or you just didn't want the inconvenience of looking after your parents when they became a burden to you. You didn't want to sacrifice your own lifestyle and comfort to look after your parents. What a convenient way this would be to get out of an obligation. Corbin is a despicable example of 
God talk. God talk is where you have a real reason for something, but you don't say what it is. You cover it up with God talk. You know, Christians do this as well. We say, we've been praying about this and we feel God is leading us to do X. But the truth is, we're really annoyed about this and we've decided to do X, so stuff you. (laughs) People have said it to me. You know, if we do that, that kind of God talk, we too are hypocrites. You see the problem here? It's the problem of religion. Starts out with good intentions, as the Pharisees did. Recognizes that human beings aren't what they should be. They need purity. All good so far. And then it locates the solution inside some human traditions. Some traditions that we have in our community. They might not be bad traditions, but they tend towards problems because of the human heart. Let me tell you some problems that come about because of our religious traditions. One, elitism. The people who are keeping the rules feel superior to the people who aren't. It feeds their pride and smugness. It feeds a sense of, we're in, they're out. Did you see what she was wearing last Sunday? Firstly, elitism. Secondly, fossilization. Yes, fossils. (laughs) When something gets left in the ground for long enough, it becomes a fossil. And any human tradition that is observed for long enough gets frozen in time and it becomes really weird and irrelevant for those who are outside of the community. A particular practice becomes sacred rather than the principle of God's law. I remember once preaching at a church in London where the pastor had served for about 50 years and he died, they call it dying in harness, like a horse, he, he, just, he died on the job. So they've never known anything else. They've always had these certain traditions about the way they do things. And they had this huge Victorian pulpit, massive great wooden thing, amazing thing. It was huge. But there were only a few people in this huge church all scattered around. And I preached there. And during the service, they had a collection. And two men came up and stood either side of me like this. And to all the world, it looked like they were about to take a leak. But what they were doing was presenting the offering, and they'd always done it like this, because we go and stand in front of the pulpit. The trouble was no one was in the pulpit. I was down at the front with this thing like this, looking at these two guys. I had two friends with me who were crying with laughter. We start to get weird. We get fossilized by our traditions. Third thing, more serious, tradition has a way of making us violate other people. The most extreme examples are religion, Religions that will kill or maim someone who tries to leave the faith. The tradition is so important that you will actually violate another person. I have friends in in the north of England who who know people who've been killed, honor killings because they tried to leave that religion. But violation can take much subtler forms, can't it? I... uh, Many years ago, went to university in Nottingham, and there I attended a wonderful church for four years. And there was a wonderful old, older man who was a deacon. He's called Ernie. And Ernie was just a sort of salt of the earth, lovely old working class Nottingham man. And he would do anything in the church. He'd put the chairs out, and he would not be on the door greeting people with a warm smile. He was a lovely guy. And I thought Ernie was great until one day I saw Ernie smoking. I thought Ernie was a Christian. 
And in my heart, proud little Pharisee that I was, I looked down on that brother <laughs> and thought, I'm not sure he is a Christian after all, because he smokes. Not knowing anything about Ernie's challenge and struggle and his background and how he maybe tried to give up many times or whatever it was. You see, I judged him and therefore I violated him, actually, in my proud heart. The other thing our traditions do is, is ironically give us loopholes that end up legitimizing us breaking God's commands. So we have something that we keep, but we actually break something bigger on the, on the outside of that. What a terrible thing that is. Pastor Tim Keller from New York says, if you become a Christian and your parents don't share your faith, it would be very possible to use their position as a way of having a go at them. Although you might hide it under the claim of witnessing. And then you might ignore them, although you hide it under a claim of separating from unbelief. Your resentment and your ambivalence toward your parents could thus be justified through your devout Christianity. It's very possible to equate religious activities, going to church, serving on teams, witnessing to unbelievers, attending Christian events. It's very possible to equate all those things with a walk with God. A person can feel close to God because they're busy. When they're actually neglecting to be a good parent, good neighbor, good friend, good citizen, or even a good worshiper. See how dangerous tradition can be? My goodness. So I'm going to ask a question now. Christian friends here, those of you who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, where are you hypocritical? Let's get real, shall we? The problem of religion is this. It doesn't go deep enough. And we need to go deeper. I'm going to move on to the second point. Uh, the problem with the heart. Jesus t shows us that a problem lies within. And here in verses 14 to 23, he shows us the problem with the heart. Verse 14. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone. Understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And then he explains this further to his disciples in verses 18 to 19. He says, look, don't you see? Nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them. It doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach. And then out to the toilet. It actually says that, but our Bible translators are too holy to put the word toilet in there. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't go into their heart, but in their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. An enormous claim there, a claim that only God can make. And You see, a huge part of these food laws was that their, their identity was built on eating only clean foods. They had stories circulating about Jewish heroes who had died for their faith because they'd refused to eat unclean food, especially pork. And Jesus is saying, look, don't miss the point of the signpost. The Old Testament has made this clean-unclean distinction as a teaching aid. It's a signpost, a way of pointing to our need to be cleansed. To make us ask, how can we really be made clean at the source when we're always becoming unclean? But people focus on the externals, the rules, the regulations, and, and ignore the deeper dimension of the heart. 
And the heart is your motivational center, the part of you that makes you do what you do, the part of you that is who you are. And so we see that you can externally do all the right things, and at the same time, the wellspring of your heart is poisoned at the source. These people are only concerned about surface impurity. Jesus is concerned with internal, deep purity and impurity, the kind that cannot come away by washing your hands. What comes out defiles them. And so he gives a list of really uncomfortable examples. Verse 21. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Here's the list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, the moral law of the Old Testament was summed up. There's two commands that are at the center of it all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love your neighbor. Two commands. Got that so far? Yes? Then they explain. The, the, the Lord expands that into 10 words, 10 commandments that show us what love God, love your neighbor looks like. And those 10 commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first four of the 10 commandments are all about loving God. And then the next six are all about what it means to love your neighbor. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. So you've got two commands, now we've got ten. And then there's another over 600 unpacking it in detail. Still with me? There's actually a kosher restaurant in London, very, very good restaurant, that's called something like 631. Uh, it might be the wrong number, but it's, it's the number of all the laws uh, for in, in the Old Testament. So God's basic rules are to love the Lord your God and, and your neighbor, and then 10, and then unpack. Now, the 10 commandments are the moral law that still stands. And what Jesus is doing here with this list of things, he's not just um, freestyling. He's actually choosing examples that are from the second part of the, the second table, the six laws about your neighbor. The sixth commandment, you shall not kill, kill, Murder, he says, it's, it's the actual action of physical harm. But he also mentions slander. That's verbal. Slander is that harm, is we harm people with our words by putting the person down in the eyes of someone else. You can kill someone by assassinating their character. People are destroyed by slander. That's why we have libel laws. And then malice. This is even deeper, isn't it? Malice is in the heart. Nobody can see your malice, verse 22. Malice is the vicious motive of ill will towards another person. And nobody was ever murdered without it starting as malice. Malice was the acorn that grew into the tree of murder. And then there's the seventh commandment, not commit adultery. He refers to sexual immorality. That's any sex outside of a monogamous marriage commitment. Adultery, specifically, is unfaithfulness towards one's spouse. But then he goes deeper again. Lewdness, verse 22. Lewdness is a whole mindset of sexual impurity that leads to an unclean life. 
And my goodness, our entire culture is shaped by lewdness now, isn't it? Bible says, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young person keep their way pure nowadays? I'm so glad that our YPF group is studying this. It's the biggest challenge, pornography. The economy of pornography is bigger than many countries. Lewdness is the mindset, though. I had a, a, a close friend who's a pastor said to me, Mike, I don't have a problem with pornography. My mind is filthy enough. <laughs> At least he was honest. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Theft, taking someone else's stuff. Envy, resenting other people for having what you don't have. Just resenting them, because I wish I had that thing or that quality about that person. The American novelist Gore Vidal once wrote, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. Envy. Ninth commandment, not bearing false witness. Deceit, deceiving or misleading somebody, robbing them of the truth that they deserve. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Evil thoughts, says Jesus, is a general attitude of self-pity and discontent with the limits of your life. It's a whole attitude towards life, and it leads us to impurity, taking what's not ours, to being dishonest. And Jesus gives this whole list, this terrible list. And then he says in verse 23, all of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Friends, can you see anything of yourself in the mirror today? Do you see that the evil in your life comes from inside? The fountain of your heart is polluted at the source. The well is poisoned. We're all condemned by this. This truth was summarized many years ago in the liturgy of the Church of England in a wonderful prayer, the general confession. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Jesus says all these evils come from inside and defile a person. So... Have you ever realized this about yourself? Have you been brought to your senses and seen that and been appalled at what's inside? And so what are you depending on today? What is your confidence before a holy, holy God? We've seen the problem of religion and we've also seen the problem of the heart. And so we're now on our knees, aren't we? Saying the general confession. But there's a better place, thank God, to look than within. And so finally we're going to look to Jesus. Verses 24 to 30. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Every culture has some idea about clean and unclean. I had a friend who was a Muslim background believer, Muslim background Christian, brought up in... Bangladesh, 
and he had been brought up a devout Muslim and, and his culture, some of his culture stayed with him and if he needed to go to the loo, he would have to wash his entire body afterwards to be clean, to feel clean. Because in his culture, that's what you did. When you just wash your hands, you wash your entire body. We know about sense of clean and unclean. If you see a takeaway, and on the, the window of the takeaway is out of five stars for hygiene, it has one star, you're not going there. They never put that sticker up, though, do they? But there are restaurants with one star, believe me. And I've eaten at some of them. <laughs> I remember once going to the uh, children's hospital in Manchester with one of our kids who had a really horrible ear infection that had gone to the bone. And the smell of that ear, oh, it was rotten. It was the smell of death, pus leaking out of it. They said, do you want to use some hand sanitizer? Yes, please. <laughs> we all know something about clean and unclean, especially with COVID. And here in verse 25 and 26, this woman whose little daughter is possessed by an impure spirit comes and falls at his feet. The woman's a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she's got, her daughter's got a demon. This is like for a Jewish person, the woman's coming to fall at his feet, and he would go, oh! <laughs> away from me you know a woman's a second class citizen in that culture she's a Greek she's got a daughter alright and she's got an unclean spirit great what do you want to do next Jesus makes it clear interesting he's not there to minister to non-Jews um, his mission was focused on, on the Jewish people he's actually gone there for a break but she's found him and so he gives her this answer that at first sight seems quite offensive don't you think this First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <sighs> right. Jesus isn't trying to make friends here. Dog was a common way that Jewish people had of referring to Gentiles, and Gentiles had their own charming words to use about Jews as well. The woman knew this was common terms, because a dog was not a cute pet that you would have on your lap, generally speaking. It was a wild scavenging beast that would go around being filthy and eating whatever it could find. I think that's where dogs belong, personally. Anyway, enough about that. And, and so the woman hears this, but she shows great humility and insight. She doesn't take offense at this blunt description. She accepts she has no right to be at the table, but she refuses to take no for an answer. She continues to press Jesus based on his own statement, says, yeah, but pet dogs get fed from the leftovers, don't they, Lord? She's saying, yes, Lord, I know I don't deserve a place at your table, but I know there's enough for me on there. And Jesus loves that, because that's true faith. With a humble acceptance of unworthiness, she shows great confidence in the mercy and grace of Jesus and his power to provide. And he says, for such a reply... Your daughter is healed, and he delivers her. He alone can make the girl clean. What's the meaning of this story? Why did Mark put it here? It's a story to show us that Jesus meant what he said about clean and unclean. All the old taboos are being swept away. The dogs under the table are now sharing the children's bread. The non-Jews, most of us, will soon cease to be dogs and become children with the Israelites because at the cross of Jesus Christ 
everything would change. At the cross, the King of Israel became the Savior of the world. And at the cross, the pure and holy one became sin for us so that we could be made righteous in God's sight. He came to take those who were unclean and impure and make them clean and pure. Not just in a positional sense, but in every way. He was crucified outside the city on a filthy rubbish dump so that we could know and become the righteousness of God. So now, friends, we can draw near to God in full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience and having a body that is washed with pure water. Jesus makes us clean. Let's pray. Bible says that if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness gracious Lord we ask now that you would show us something about ourselves that is unclean and that in this next song we would bring it to your cross and leave it there for good Amen.